available in more homes than the Pac-12 Network. We are the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online. And here he goes, Miles Jack! And I'm Ryan Abraham from USCFootball.com. Liner going to try to sneak it ahead. Touchdown, SC! We are the Podcast of Champions. Welcome, everyone, back to the Podcast of Champions. I'm your co-host, Ryan Abraham, not David Woods. He is on special secret assignment this week. So who better to fill in than our buddy, our pal, Brandon Huffman. Follow him on Twitter, at Brandon Huffman. He's the national recruiting editor at 24-7 Sports. Brandon, thank you so much for filling in for David Woods. Ryan, I appreciate you. I'm thrilled to be invited. I appreciate you inviting me. But I do not know that I can feel the ample size shoes that David Woods feels on a daily basis. And if, if there was like a beard, you know, if you had some kind of thing to cover your beard, you couldn't feel that. But I think you could feel his shoes. I mean, certainly, <laughs> you know, you know your stuff. David Storr does this half-assed. We know. We all know that. But that's what makes <laughs> it great. You're, you're actually going to be prepared for this. We're gonna, this is going to be the most informative show we've had in quite a while. I, I got to get my water ready because I plan to not shut up for the next two hours, five hours, <laughs> seven hours, however long you need me, Ryan, I am here for you. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. So what we're going to do, uh, yeah, David's got a whole bunch of crap going on. I'm a little under the weather. So we thought we would get Brandon on because it's where, well, actually we're recording this on a Friday. The early signing period is concluding today. Uh, but most of the players had signed early on. So we wanted to go through each and every Pac-12 school, talk about some of the highlights of their recruiting class, and who better to do that than Brandon Huffman. It's so funny. I think I was listening to you on the Pac-12 network. They were doing their show, which was basically like a Zoom show. It was kind of funny. You had Guy and uh, uh, Guy Haberman and Yogi Roth on there. Uh, but, man, they were just, like, laughing how great you were. You like you would, They would just mention a subject, and Brandon just goes off, and it was, uh, it was pretty funny. that When you went off the show, they were like, Man, he knows his stuff. And so it's always good to hear you on uh, after our signing day. Well, thank you. you know, and that was a great show because it was early in the morning when I still had plenty of bullets left in the chamber. By the end of the day, I think my last interview, I was like, yeah, Travis Hunter signed Florida State today. It was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it, it's funny. I was back, and you're an East Coast guy, so you can you can relate. I was back in, in Orlando a couple of weeks ago and was trying to watch one of those Saturday games where the games were starting like at 730 or 8 o'clock on the Pacific time zone and it was like 11 o'clock back east i was out by like midnight i'm thinking okay i can watch a quarter which it's great to watch sports on the west coast what sucks is when you're in a east coast dominated industry and you have to be up at 4 30 yeah. to do a 7 30 show back east all of a sudden you're like hey, you know what i take it back it's not as fun to be on the west coast at times like this yeah it's weird and i go back for christmas like my family's in the boston area and you're like, wait, it's like Sunday morning. You wake up to watch football. You're like, wait, what? Like, why is it not at 10 o'clock? Oh, 1 o'clock. Yes. Like, oh, my God. And then Sunday night football, you're like, I'm ready to go to bed. Like, this is. <laughs> it, it was crazy. We, we were at Disney World with the family. And I'm like, 12 o'clock, I have to wait till the college football game starts. This is horrible. <laughs> I have been here for three hours. How am I not getting scores yet? Yeah, it's so weird. Uh, all right. Well, we got a lot to get to. Just want to let everyone know if you want to contact us, you can email us, podcast at gmail.com or call or text us at 424- 532-0678. You can tweet us at Pac-12 Podcast on the website. As always, Pac-12 Podcast.com. You can find all our content. 
Go find us over on Reddit, Podcast of Champions. And then if you're on the Apple Podcasting app, please follow the Podcast of Champions and rate us. And I did want to thank uh, my bookie. They've been great uh, this year sponsoring us. And uh, I've done a really good job my little my bookie account betting the Pac-12 games. But if you want Wilder versus Fury, Mayweather versus Pacquiao, electric personalities that produce big fights and even bigger betting opportunities, this Saturday, Jake Paul, Tyron Woodley will be no different. So don't miss on the action. Bet the fight with my bookie. The best odds, prop bets for Paul Woodley, too. And you can start by doubling your initial deposit all the way up to 1000 bucks using promo code PAC12. That's double your initial deposit, double your funds, double your excitement for Paul Woodley, too, at my bookie. Uh, as much as we'd all love to see Jake Paul eat the canvas, he's looked strong in previous matchups. And with Woodley taking the fight on short notice, all the odds are in pod, uh, Paul's favor. Uh, back to problem child to win this rematch. And he'll be sure to be the favorite. So don't miss out. You can double your first deposit up to a thousand bucks. Use the promo code PAC12 and head over to my bookie today. Place your bets, fill your pockets, and watch this grudge match get settled with Paul versus Woodley 2. Bet anything, anytime, anywhere with my bookie. Uh, so thanks to my bookie for that. And uh wanna again thanks, uh, thank Brandon Huffman. We got a little breaking news since the last time we did a show, Brandon. Uh couple coaching changes in the Pac-12. We know about, uh, you know, Lincoln Riley going to USC. Uh, we know Washington found their man going down to Fresno, but Oregon, there was some little little drama going on there, but Dan Lanning heads uh, to Oregon, the the um, Georgia defensive coordinator. Wanted to get your th- initial thoughts on uh, Dan Lanning going to the Ducks. Well, I think it's an intriguing hire when you start to see some of the names that are being attached to him that will join that staff, potentially Kenny Dillingham from Florida State, uh, Tosh LaFoy from the NFL, but previously at Cal, Washington, Alabama, uh, Marshall Malchow, who had been the former director of player personnel at the University of Washington with Chris Peterson, then was at Georgia, and now at Texas A&M, he's potentially joining the staff, retaining Don, Don Johnson on that staff. So it's clear that Lanning understands there's recruiting momentum with that program, with the, the class that Mario Cristobal has put together the last three or four years with where it was before he left for Miami. It's clear that recruiting is going to remain an emphasis, but this will be Dan Lanning's first chance as a head coach. If you look at the two previous head coaches at Oregon Hire, they were both head coaches at previous schools, whereas Mark Helfridge, Chip Kelly, that was their first head coaching job, uh, Mike Pilati as well. So, you know, it, it could go either way. We've seen the success that their, the predecessors that had no coaching experience had. We've seen the relative success that the coach that had some previous coaching experience in Mario Cristobal. We saw Willie Tiger get out of there pretty quickly, uh, so we can't really speak to him. But I think the Dan Lanning hire is an intriguing hire. Uh, the one thing I will say is that we, there was a lot of optimism about a defensive coordinator getting his first hire a couple of years ago in the Pac-12 North, and it was one of the most infamously flaming out coaching regimes we've ever seen in the very brief history that that's, that man was the head coach in Seattle. Yeah, that didn't I'm, not, I'm not saying Dan Lane is going to be Jimmy Lake, but I'm also going right. to say there's always the risk when you hire a first-time head coach. That's what I'm saying. How bizarre is it that you had the two coaches at Washington, Washington State, like never get to coach an Apple Cup game. <laughs> like how crazy is that? It really is a crazy. I mean, that that's the, the the funniest thing about it all is that you had a interim coaching bowl this year and you didn't even have a year ago. Like it just, I guess that's college football in the 2020s. I, I think that's perfectly in a nutshell right there. Very crazy. Um, all right. So that was like the sort of big news. There's a lot of transfer portal stuff that's been going on. Um, 
just you know players going in, you know transferring in things like that. We'll we'll probably get to those in uh, later episodes because that's like that's this is really like silly season's usually coaching transfer portal stuff. It's like signing day all year round, Brad. I mean it's nuts right now. Uh, one of the things that I'm going to be really fascinated to see is with the AFCA coaches convention coming up in a couple of weeks in San Antonio. There's been talk about coaches putting a proposal together to change the early signing period, but I'm not convinced that there's not going to be a push for a transfer portal signing season per se, where instead of guys going into the portal in the middle of the season, that they may adjust the timing of it so that you cannot transfer to a school until a certain window, because as great as college football coaches are at coaching football and, you know, depending on which fan base they may agree with me or disagree with me that their coach cannot coach college football. They're not good multitaskers. They are really bad at trying. I mean, it's why we've seen official visits start to shift to the spring. Why we see them shift to after the season, because Coaches have a hard time managing official visits and their game plan. So now you throw in official visits, in-home visits, recruiting your own players that are going into the portal, recruiting players that are in the portal from another school. Can coaches handle all that work for the $7 million a year that they're making? I'm not sure that they can, right? <laughs> That's a lot. That's a lot on their plate. Um, you're not a – like I hate the early signing period. I don't know. It seems like that's going to be over. Um, are you – I don't even know. Are you a fan of it? Do you think it's going to be moved? Do you think it should be moved? Yeah, I think it will be moved. I, I would love to see it be very similar to the NCAA basketball signing window where they have the first signing period in November right before the season starts and then the second one in April after the season concludes with the official visits not able to go out until August 1st going into your senior year. Maybe we'll cut down on the, the rise in fake uncommittable offers and if you give an official offer, a kid can sign for it in August. And then if he doesn't, he signs again in January. Maybe not wait till February, but maybe we do it in January after the coaching change. If a kid signs in August and there is a head coaching change at the school he signed with, he can get out of the NLI. But if there's assistant coaching changes, that won't allow it. I mean, I think we, the players need to have more freedom as it is. But I think there's going to be caveats that if there's going to be a early signing period, there's got to be the opportunity for players to get out if the head coach leaves. But we're seeing now some head coaches leaving in January. You know, we saw it two years ago when Mike Leach left after Washington State's bowl game, after Mississippi State's bowl game, when Jordan Moorhead got fired. Nick Rolovich gets hired in the middle of January. You could see there still being, with the, the, the February signing period, at least a little bit more certainty of who's going to be the head coach there. But even then, two years ago, we saw Mel Tucker leave, I want to say, Shortly after the February signing day, when I think Mark D'Antonio retired the night before signing day in February, Mel T Tucker took over a couple of days later. Carl Durrell took over in mid-February at Colorado. The pandemic hit, and he had like a seven-day window for a year and a half where he was allowed to have recruits on campus. So that was so crazy too. Um, lots of stuff going on in the in the Pac-12, and we'll uh, we'll do a show next week with uh, David Woods. We'll we'll actually preview the LA Bowl. Um, uh, a little bit later, but I want to get through some of the recruiting classes here. Uh, since you know these programs very well, and you know, we don't have to go, you know, tremendous detail, but you will because that's your Brandon Huffman. But <laughs> we'll go through the programs and just kind of give some highlights of what you like um, from the different ones. I'm going to count down from the way 24 7 Sports ranks these uh, recruiting classes. And just to be sure, like to let people know, there is a new product coming out or a new product out there. They're going to be ranking it with transfers as well. Which obviously that that changes a lot of things too, uh, but we'll just do on the signing day uh, the, the way players are signed right now and start from the bottom. We'll go with our, the number twelve team, Washington Huskies. <laughs> They're uh, six commits so far for for the Huskies. Uh, looks like 
uh, three four-star guys. But what's going on with uh, Washington's class, Brandon? So Washington's class was relatively small on Wednesday. I think it will probably remain on the smaller side even coming into February. Uh, they had two decommits that were probably encouraged to look elsewhere. One ended up signing Colorado State. That was their quarterback, Jackson Stratton. The other was Chance Bogan, a tight end. Then they had one player who they still really want decommit, and that was Vega Ioni. But they're going to still try with Vega because they just need to name an offensive line coach. So their class on Wednesday actually only signed five. It says six on 24-7. One of those, Emeka Megwa, actually broke his leg, or he suffered a leg injury, maybe a knee injury. He actually enrolled at Washington during the, the early part of the school year because he was going to miss his senior season. So the Huskies only signed five players on Wednesday. Jeremy Bernard had been committed to them for nearly two years, played on the seven-on-seven circuit with Sam Heward. That was a big uh, pickup for them and to be able to hold on to him. And then Ryan Otten, whose brother Cade had been a star tight end for the Huskies. Uh, he was a Husky legacy he signed to. They also signed an offensive lineman out of Arizona, Parker Brailsford, Lance Holscott out of Arizona as well, and then Denzel Boston uh, from down the road here in Puyallup. But a, I, I would say they're probably their biggest news this week was the uh, announcement by Michael Penix Jr. out of Indiana that he was going to be transferring to University of Washington, where he'll be reunited with Kalen DeBoer, who had been his offensive coordinator. Uh, yeah. Interestingly enough, Nick Sheridan, who was the offensive coordinator at Indiana that replaced DeBoer, will be joining DeBoer staff, likely as the tight ends coach. So Penix is transferring in. So that was kind of the big news. And where Washington, probably their big news was more the portal this week, players that they lost to it and the transfer that they got in. They got another transfer from UC Davis. But uh, a pretty boring day for Husky fans when it comes to following signing day. Yeah, it's, 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 I think it's pretty common right now. There's going to be some boring early signing periods. The ones these these classes are at the bottom are a little bit boring. Um, but a lot of them have something in common where you've had a coaching change. Uh, so that's obviously with Washington, you had that. So it's the early signing period. I think it's going to be tough when you're making a coaching change. And we see that, you know, just not that many commitments is Washington have uh, in for anybody for like the February or maybe during the all-star breaks, like uh, the all-star games, uh, some extra you know, commitments can come from that. Yeah. So the big one that they're waiting on, and in fact, there's, Three Pac-12 schools waiting on to see what he's going to do is Josh Connolly Jr. He's the number one player uh, in the Northwest. He's the number one offensive tackle in the country. He's got a kind of a loose top six right now of Alabama, Oklahoma, uh, Michigan, USC, Oregon, and Washington. But three of those schools, Oregon, USC, and Washington, all had head coaching changes all have offensive line changes uh, in terms of who's the coach that's going to be there. Oklahoma is going to retain Bill Bedenbosso of the other school that he was considering that had a head coaching change. They have an offensive line coach in place, but he will not announce until February National Signing Day. Uh, he'll be the big one for Washington. I mean, he would be, with the exception of maybe a, a USC, if they get Damani Jackson. Josh Connerly is basically the bell cow for the Pac-12 this year if he stays in the Pac-12, but right now Michigan's got a lot of the momentum with him. Yeah. Uh, all right. So I mentioned like those, the three of the the four bottom schools that are ranked in twenty four seven sports team rankings for as far as the commitments that were signed uh, this week had coaching changes. This one at number eleven did not. Arizona State Sun Devils. <laughs> so, but they did have a lot of turmoil, obviously, and you have to suspend a few coaches for the year. Um, what's uh, what's going on with ASU's class? Eight commitments. Uh, seven, well, one four star and seven three stars. 
Yeah, so, I mean, they didn't have a head coaching change, but they had three assistant coaches that went on paid leave at some point in the summer, which directly affected the recruiting class, especially when all three of those assistants, Prentice Gill, uh, Chris Hawkins, and Adam Brenneman, were among their most active recruiters on the trail. There's also been all the uncertainty around Antonio Pierce uh, remaining on staff as a defensive coordinator. So with Arizona State, they had some early commitments. They actually did pull off kind of a, a signing day surprise in getting a commitment out of quarterback Bennett Meredith. At one point, Arizona State was the only school in the Pac-12 without a quarterback commit. Uh, I think four ended up not signing a quarterback commit, and those are all four schools that had a coaching change, um, or I guess so Washington, Washington State, USC, all had a quarterback commit at one point. They had a coaching change. Arizona State just didn't flat out have a quarterback. Uh, they did get Bennett Meredith to announce on signing day, so that gave them a little bit of boost in terms of just some depth. Uh, but they had two players that didn't sign. One is coming in as a transfer, Dylan Hall, uh, formerly played at he's Enola Valley, was originally, I want to say, at Boise State, uh, out of high school, or, or signed with Boise State out of high school. Uh, and then Tristan Dunn, who had been their top-rated commit for various points, four-star safety out of Sumner, Washington. He didn't sign. will probably sign in February. So what they did sign was a four-star running back out of Virginia, Tevin White. And then I like the tight end that they got out of Oregon, Jacob Newell, who grew up in the shadows of University of Oregon, grew up on the other side of the five freeway uh, from Eugene, and will be going to the Pac-12 to play for Arizona State. They flipped him from Nevada. Uh, but otherwise, I anticipate ASU is going to be hitting the portal hard this year, and they've already got three commitments out of the portal. Yeah, and, and just let people know, so you can early, you, know, you could sign 25 players, but now this year, if you lose players, you can sign a seven extra. So we could see some classes like this, you know, Washington, and the next team we're going to talk about, USC also, you know, have half your class or whatever come from the transfer portal, it seems. Yeah, and, and I would think that with the super senior year, with the COVID season, with the way numbers are skewing things, but also – the reliance to, or not the reliance, the uh, the NCAA's decision to say, okay, you can have this extended year, but you got to get back under 85 scholarships or two 85 scholarships by the end of the year. You're going to see a lot of you know math being involved with the numbers, and that's where I think the portal becomes a handy. So instead of trying to offer a high school kid when you might have a lot of depth, you're still trying to build depth. The problem is, is when that depth doesn't qualify, or I'm sorry, when that depth runs out of eligibility and you don't have a lot of high school players or high school signings or young signings out of high school on your roster, you now don't have any young depth, and you might end up being forced to rely on the transfer portal exclusively for quite some time. And that's a, I mean, that's a good point. So this pe- previous year, what they said was, okay, if you had seniors, uh, they wouldn't count. Like, so everyone got an extra year of eligibility. So you could have more than 85 scholarships during the 2021 season. Uh, that hasn't been extended, right, Brandon? So 2022, you just have to get to 85. Yes. So they, basically the other thing, too, and I, I had one Pac-12 head coach tell me this in the spring, that when the NCAA didn't give them a number, that was even worse for them because they were under the operation of, hey, we can have more scholarships than 85, but we just don't know how many. And then on top of that, this coach said, hey, the other thing is the school's on the hook for it. The NCAA is not giving us money to compensate those players with their scholarships. So the big schools, the Alabama, the LSUs, they could probably have as many as they want because they have an unlimited budget, but we're on the hook for the scholarships. So we still have to keep our numbers 
relatively low and in that 85 range. Otherwise, our program's on the hook to pay for those guys. So that's the other thing. You still kind of have a haves versus the have-nots and, you know, keeping that roster now, it becomes moot after this year. So those players can still keep playing. But if you keep a player that is using that COVID gear and is extending his eligibility, you lose that on the back end with the high school kids. Yeah. All right, let's go to our number 10 team. USC Trojans. Uh, six commitments, picked up a five-star um, and a couple four-stars. But what do you think about USC's small class? Well, I'll tell you what. On Wednesday morning, uh, for those of you that are listening, Chad Carson is the database manager for 24-7. And every year on signing day, he sends out in the morning what the team rankings look like before the first signatures start coming in, before the first announcements start coming in. And something that I don't think we'll ever see again, David, was USC was 105th in the country when the day started on Wednesday. Now, I think they only ended up getting, what, two new commitments on that day. Uh, They got Zion Branch out of Las Vegas announced for them. And then I believe it was Garrison Madden out of Georgia who signed. But just those two players alone, based largely on the heels of Zion Branch, who's a top 50 player nationally, uh, he's 24-7's number one player, or the, the composite's number one player in Nevada, moved him up to 82nd. And w- they went from being 12th when the day started to 10th. Over the course of the next six weeks, I anticipate USC will end up in the 50s and probably end up in the top half of the Pac-12 because there's a number of players that they are still in it for. Damani Jackson will announce on Friday. C.J. Williams will announce at the All-American Bowl. Uh, obviously, Josh Connolly, they're still in it for. Um, who else? Cyrus Moss is going to announce at the All-American Bowl. Yeah. Uh, so there's a number of players that USC is still in on that are elite players, highly rated players that could bump this class up. And I think if people really want to get a true preview of what things will look like, with Lincoln Riley there for a full season and what Lincoln Riley's recruiting efforts will bring, go look at next year, where with only three commitments, USC has two of those being five stars and the number seven class in 2023 with only three pledges. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. So they, yeah, USC fans are a little upset, but I think not getting like the Bill Beanball guy from Oklahoma, that probably hurt them in the, the offensive line recruiting a little bit, but they did pretty much jettison most of the guys that were already committed to the Clay Helton, Dante Williams staff. Um, but I wanted to get your thoughts on Dante Williams being retained, uh, how much that could have an impact on things. Because he's an ace recruiter, but Lincoln Riley was already an ace recruiter in Southern California as well. He was. And that's why you know there was kind of a, a mild surprise that Dante's being retained. But it, it does make sense because he was the blue guy for a lot of the younger players that committed during the Clay Hilton era. And I'm not talking about Malachi Nelson, Makai Lemon, who committed to USC when Lincoln Riley was hired. I'm talking about guys like Aaron White and Jason Robinson and the early momentum that USC was building with the 23, 24 and even the 25 classes. Dante Williams was a big part of that. So it was kind of intriguing or not intriguing, kind of interesting that some of the players that committed to USC that were either in the secondary or committed during the fall when he was the interim coach uh, were encouraged to look at their options elsewhere. Uh, Fusions Price Sox, Jaden Gold uh, were a couple of those names, but they still were able to you know, keep a guy like Fabian Ross. I also think that if Dante Williams hadn't been retained, it would have probably made things a little bit more difficult for them with Damani Jackson. You know, when Damani decommitted from USC, it was when it became clear that Dante was not going to be promoted to the full-time head coach. And at that time, a lot of people thought he was going to Alabama. Now, it's Friday when we're recording on December 17th. He's supposed to announce today. But there's always that wonder. 
you know, is it going to be USC, especially with Elias Ricks, who some thought was going to transfer to USC, going to Alabama? Can the tide flip Domani and get him in the fold? Or does Dante's retention swing things back towards USC for Domani? I tend to think that with Dante's retention, that's going to bring Domani Jackson back into the fold for USC, enhance their class, and give USC a, a guy who will get out on the road and, you know, has something to prove. Yeah, we're recording this uh, Friday morning. We should know like a few hours from now, actually. So you might, by the time you listen to this, you might know where Jackson's going. Um, all right. Now the the rest of these classes at least have double digit commitments. Um, Washington. I'm, I'm sorry. Our number nine team, Washington State Cougars. <laughs> Eleven commits for the Cougs. Yeah, you know, just like with Washington and you, you have midseason coaching change, uh, the uncertainty of who they were hiring, although there seemed to be much more certainty when Jimmy Lake was let go, it was clear that they were going to go outside the program to find their head coach, whereas with Washington State, it was pretty apparent that Jake Dickert had a chance to be retained as the full-time head coach. After winning the Apple Cup, taking the Cougs to a bowl game, he had that interim label taken off. So, they, you know, the Cougs class was relatively small because there was the uncertainty which coaches are going to be retained, which assistants are going to be retained. But down the stretch, they were able to get a commitment from Leighton Smithson, a kid that I got a chance to see in Idaho earlier in the year, moved to Washington. He's one of the lower rated players in this class in the composite, uh, but we have him, you know, pretty highly rated top 25 player in the state of Washington. I love that pickup. His teammate, Javensky Schlenbaker out of Squalicum High School in Bellingham as well. Uh, number three player in that class. The big one for, for Washington State was flipping Andre Dollar, who had been a longtime commit to Oregon. They got his commitment on signing day. They held on to Tariq Alukta, who had some schools kicking in the tires there to see if there was a chance that they could flip him. He's an All-American uh, playing the All-American Bowl. And then uh, another player that I really like the pickup of, He's the lowest rated player in this class for the Cougs, uh, but that's because he's a Juco, and I don't think the other networks value Juco players. That's Sam Lockett out of City College of San Francisco. Great story. He's from Spokane. His teammate, Armani Marsh, had actually had a pick six in the Apple Cup, uh, walked on to Washington State. Sam actually walked on to Utah State, went there for a couple of years. When Gary Anderson left, he decided to go to City College of San Francisco, bet on himself, got an offer from San Jose State, committed to San Jose State. Then the Cougs came home. I texted him it's about 30 seconds after he tweeted the Washington State offer and said, I'm putting in a crystal ball pick for the Cougs, just so you know. And he gave me the smiley face emoji because it was a matter of when, not if, he was going to take that opportunity. He always dreamed of playing in the Pac-12. Now he gets to go home and play 90 minutes from where he grew up with his best friend and teammate from high school. And I think that's that's the kind of great story. We don't see a lot of Juco players of late in the day and age of the transfer portal, especially in the Pac-12. But a great pickup for the Cougs and a guy that I think is going to come in and be an impact guy early on. For Jake Dickert, it just seemed like when he was announced, like it was so popular in the building. Um, what kind of like impact can he have recruiting? It just seems like he was really popular with the players and it seems like he would be with the recruits as well. Absolutely. I think there's a couple of reasons why he's popular. One, he held that program together when there was so much uncertainty. It's one thing to lose a head coach in the middle of the season. It's becoming a little bit more common in recent years. But they also lost a number of assistant coaches at that same time. So he was basically duct taping, pulling a MacGyver on that staff, grabbing QCs, analysts, uh, older guys that had been retired, but that were just still around football and putting them in position units and held that program together. I think their only two losses down the stretch uh, following the firing of Nick Rolovich were to BYU and to Oregon. So the Pac-12 North champion and the unofficial Pac-12 champion this year, uh, the BYU Cougars. So uh, the other thing I think that makes him popular is that 
he really helped build momentum in state, even when he was with Rolovich and then when he took his own program. And that's something that Washington State struggled to do under Mike Leach. They never really got their footing under Nick Rolovich, largely because of the pandemic. But they started to prioritize Washington a little bit more over the last year. And then four of their commitments are actually high school players from the state of Washington. And then their fifth is a junior college player from the state of Washington. It's not very often that you see half of Washington State's class be in-state prospects. But this year, they, they, were, they, they were able to do that. And I think that you're going to see Jake Dickert continue to prioritize the state and the Northwest region for the Cougs. All right. Uh, let's go to our uh, number eight team. California Golden Bears. No coaching change there, but there was a lot of talk that uh, you could see Justin Wilcox go to Oregon. That didn't happen, and that was a, an interesting story. But uh, what's going on with Cal? 13 commitments. Yeah, so Cal's class has been kind of interesting, too, because there was so much uncertainty there. Is Justin Wilcox going to leave for the Oregon job? I mean, his name kept popping up. They actually signed a good number of their commits on signing day. There were two that didn't sign, Cameron Sidney out of modern day, Jackson Brown, who was one of their top-rated offensive line prospects from nearby San Ramon Valley High School in Danville. Um, he's a player that took an official visit to Cincinnati last weekend. USC had offered him. That's where his mom went. He's going to wait until February to sign. But I, what I really liked about Cal is – that even on the heels of Justin Wilcox saying he's staying in Berkeley, they were able to end up with Jaden Ott back in the fold. He had been committed to them out of Norco, played at Bishop Gorman for a stretch, was originally committed to Oregon, flipped, committed to Cal, decommitted, ended up signing with Cal. They got Trent Ramsey, who was originally from Arizona. Uh, his teammate, Kai Milner, when he was in Arizona, Trent Ramsey's teammate, Kai Milner, is a quarterback at Cal, could contend to be the starter next year with Chase Garbers leaving for the NFL um, Trent Ramsey moved to Florida. He signed with Cal on Wednesday. They got Mason Starling, another good Juco prospect, uh, who's out of the College of San Mateo, a program that Cal has recruited really strong in the last couple of years. He's a top five Juco receiver nationally. He signed in this class. Um, and then they're just basically trying to, to – oh, they also flipped Ashton Hayes from Reno, who had been committed oh, okay. to Nebraska. Um, that was the other one they flipped. So there was actually quite a bit of late movement there for Cal. And I think the stability that Justin Wilcox saying he's staying and now extending his contract probably helped with the, the, the stretch from there. Yeah, they uh, ranked 56 nationally, eighth in the Pac-12. So this podcast, I don't know how, but somehow survived when Jake Browning eventually moved on 12 and a <laughs> half years at the you know, Washington's program. I don't know how we're going to move on from Chase Garbers because he's been my MVP for as long as I can remember. Um no quarterback in this class. Where does Cal go quarterback-wise? Well, and that's the interesting thing with, with this class with Cal is that when they had a commitment, it was from Justin Martin who ultimately signed with UCLA. They never ended up really pursuing or pushing for a quarterback. And not only did they lose their quarterback commit, but they've had two quarterbacks go into the portal in the last couple of years. So there's not a lot of quarterback depth in that roster right now. And I think that that's going to be something that – is certainly going to be, you know, a priority for Justin Wilcox, whether that's retaining Bill Musgrave, if there's a change at the offensive coordinator position. Uh, what they definitely need, though, is a scholarship quarterback, because right now, uh, by my calculations, you know, Kai Milner might be the only uh, scholarship quarterback besides Zach Johnson uh, at a Hart High School in Newhall 
Uh, they did get a preferred walk-on that I really like named Blake DeBishop, who signed with them in the, a part of the 2021 class. His father played at Oregon. Father actually played with Bill Musgrave um, and Chris Miller, who was the former who preceded Bill Musgrave at the quarterback at Oregon. DeBishop was just one of those players who was a victim of COVID. He waited his turn to start at Westland High School, had big numbers, but by the time he played his senior season of football, the 2021 class had already signed. So he could be a guy that could push Kai Milliner and Zach Johnson. But other than that, Cal's off or Cal's quarterback depth chart is non-existent. And all three of those guys are essentially in the same class. So it's going to be fascinating to see how aggressively Cal hits the transfer portal, which we absolutely expect him to, or if they make a late run on a high school quarterback that didn't sign this week and bring him in in February. Keaton Slovis. He could go over there. I don't know. So I don't know if he would go there, but, um, that would be interesting. Okay. Well, and, and the other oh. thing that just kind of popped up, is, and, and I wonder if, I mean, maybe, maybe not, but with the arrival of Dylan Gabriel transferring to UCLA with Ethan Garbers, who had transferred in last year, looking oh. to be heir apparent to Dorian Thompson-Robin, maybe we still have a Garbers at quarterback. I'm not Ooh. saying anything. But the other thing is, now the one-time transfer rule is already been effective for Garbers. So he'd have to sit out the 22 season wherever he ended up unless he – uh, went down, but I was just spitballing, doing some MacGyvering of my own there, Ryan. I, I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, how do we get another Garbers there at Cal? Because uh, you don't, Dave doesn't like to see Cal offense, but when Garbers was in there, you could do it. But uh, yeah, now maybe it's just like Wildcat and play defense and, and punt the ball on second down and stuff. Um, <laughs> punting right. is winning. Yeah, punting is winning. That's how you see like that. Okay, uh, let's go to our number seven team Oregon State Beavers. <laughs> Uh, 16 commitments. They're sort of like uh, ranked 49th uh, in the country. Of course, going to the bowl game for the first time in a long time. They're sort of like the uh, this is Simpsons episode. Oregon State's kind of like the Millhouse and like things are you know when th- something goes well, which is rare. Like there's like everything's coming up Millhouse. Like Oregon State's winning on the field. They're like undefeated at home, getting better in the recruiting aspects. What's uh, the optimism here for the Oregon State Beavers, Brandon? Well, if you're an Oregon State fan, you have to love the fact that of the 16 players that signed on on Wednesday, 15 of them were from high school. And when we saw Jonathan Smith take that program over after the 2017 season, those first couple of classes were heavy on JUCOs. They were heavy on the transfer portal, heavy on quick fixes and older, more experienced guys. Now, as he's found his footing as a coach, you know, in, in 2020, they beat Oregon to, to win the Civil War, whatever it's called now, since we can't call it the Civil War. In 2021, they clinched a spot in a bowl game, had a chance to, you know, potentially be a the Pac-12 North champion at various points in November, which is the latest it's been that Oregon State's been involved in the conference championship race in quite some time, and certainly under Jonathan Smith. And that carried over onto the to the recruiting side of things with a class that has 16 commitments. A lot of momentum has been built over the last two years with Oregon State. And I think you saw it come to fruition with this class. I love this class. I, I love some of the players that they were able to get. Uh, first of all, Matthias Malachi Donaldson out of Oaks Christian, uh, a pass rusher. Uh, they put off held off a late charge from a couple schools. His teammate Sterling Lane ended up at Arizona. He, too, was getting pursued late. But I, I love what Malachi Donaldson brings to the table for Oregon State, um, going down into IMG, but another a former Southern California, one-time USC commit, Dylan Lopez, they signed him. Uh, a player that I think fans need to really get to know is Jack Belling, a tight end out of Seattle Prep. Washington made a late run at him, but 
they didn't really pursue him all that much up until the hiring of Kalen DeBoer. He stuck with his commitment to Oregon State, and he signed with the Beavers on Wednesday. Uh, and then another name, a guy that I think fans are going to really enjoy to, to watch here in the next couple of years, a kid named Takari Hipple. He's out of Tenino, Washington, a really small school, small town in southwest Washington. This kid's a horse trainer. I, I saw him at a camp two years ago, <laughs> and we talked extensively about – him being really into horses and how he wakes up every morning and trains horses and works with horses. And somebody who watches Yellowstone like I do, you know, that is not an easy job from the looks of it. And this guy is a country strong kid. And I mean, this guy wrangles horses for a living. So wrangling Pac-12 quarterbacks might be a little bit easier for him. That's awesome. I love Yellowstone. And uh, yeah, like if you want to get someone that's tough, like, yeah, they're like, you know, getting kicked by horse stuff, trying to figure that out. That, I think that's like that's a good tough. You know, sometimes you're like, uh, that's an offensive lineman that did like the discus or like the shot put. Like, okay, he's got great feet. Like anyone that's a horse trader, like, okay, that guy's tough. Yes, no, no that. question. And then they're just natural strength, country strong, country strong guy. Um, as far as the beeves go, it's taken a little while, uh, but it seems like Jonathan Smith has things going in the right direction. You mentioned the kind of focusing more on the high school stuff. It seems like. He was using the portal and JC guys to sort of build up some stability. And now you can kind of like you have that foundation and you can build on it from high school. This seems like more of a long term type of class they're going for. Yeah. And I think, you know, that that really is the play where now you can you've got your quick fixes. You've got your guys. You had the COVID year to extend a couple of guys their time there. Now you can start to work way more on player development and getting those guys in, getting them ready, but not having to rush them to play before they're ready. Now you can start using guys their third year in the program rather than their first year in the program. And that's always an important sign of a program where the coach finally gets to the time where he can start going the long-term development plan instead of needing those quick fixes to get things turned around so quickly. Once they get to start being more picky and choosy on the high school recruits that they can bring in and then just turn around and develop them, that usually means that there's been good things happening in the program. All right, uh, real close. Uh, these are this is now the top half, but these two teams were really close. Oregon State and our number six team, Colorado Buffalo. Carl Durrell moving up the 64th class last year, up to 48. But like you had mentioned earlier in the show, when he took over, there's just I mean he didn't have a lot of opportunity to meet with anybody. So this seems like the first good opportunity that Carl Durrell's had to kind of get visitors on campus, show them what the the culture and what he's trying to build at Colorado and uh, and get those kids to sign. Yeah, and interestingly enough, Colorado continues to be the one program in the Pac-12, with the exception of Stanford that's always recruited nationally, to really focus outside the Pacific footprint to find a good chunk of their class. They have 11 of their 18 commitments come from either Texas or Georgia, and then they only have actually four of their commitments uh, from California and Colorado, then another two, Arizona and Oregon, that are in the Pac-12 footprint. So you're, you're seeing Colorado being the easternmost school in the conference, really use the rest of the geography of the United States to try to find some guys, but a, a heavy influence into Texas. Uh, one of those names is Owen McCown out of Rusk, Texas. Uh, if the McCown name sounds familiar, then it's because he is related to all 500 McCowns that played in the NFL, <laughs> uh, including Josh, his father, Josh McCown, his uncle, Luke McCown, and an uncle, Randy, actually played at Texas A&M. Uh, but the McCown name is like the Garber name. It feels like if there's a Garber playing at Cal, there's a McCown playing in the NFL, uh, but there will be a McCown playing in the Pac-12. They also were able to 
Going to Texas for a couple of other key players like Dylan Dixon, who's their highest rated player out of Pearland, Texas. Jordan Tyson out of Allen and one of the more prominent programs in the Lone Star State. And then they did get a couple of players from the state of Colorado, one being Grant Page out of Fairview High School right there in Boulder. And then Travis Gray from Cherokee Trail. His father played at Colorado. And Colorado has continued to do really well when it comes to legacies. Oki Salavea, his father played for Bill McCartney in the late 80s. Oki was committed to San Diego State. Colorado came in with a late offer. They were bringing him in. They're going to give him a chance at quarterback, which is what he plays in American Samoa. Uh, but he is a big jumbo athlete, 6'3", 200 pounds. He's the lowest rated player in this class, but he's our number one player in Samoa. He'll be playing in the Polynesian Bowl in January and probably the most intriguing player in the Pac-12 in this class. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, the, just look at the breakdown where they're recruiting from. So many guys from Texas. Um, what's the? I mean, are there, are there more opportunities to get Colorado players? They haven't gotten into Utah at all, like some of the Mountain players. Is or there's just not not as much talent there. What, what's going on with that? Well, I, I think if you go back to you know really when. Gosh, you got to go. Might even be able to go back to Dan Hawkins, but then when John Embry was there, um, and then even when Mike McCarthy, or Mike McCarthy was there. Colorado has struggled to recruit the state. Part of that has been that they've had a lot of national elite players like a Christian McCaffrey. You know, all four of the McCaffrey brothers ended up out of state before ultimately some of them came back to play for their father at Northern Colorado. But Valor Christian hasn't really sent a lot of players to Colorado. They've sent them all nationally. And then that's kind of trickled down where a lot of the in-state players look for a reason to get out of Colorado. And it's not the most fertile recruiting ground. I would say in the Pac-12, you know, only Oregon has less Division I players sign each year than the state of Colorado. Uh, so when you do have some elite in-state kids and you're trying to recruit against an Oklahoma State or an Oklahoma or an Ohio State, which has been some of the schools that have come in from outside the Pac-12. And then you have the Pac-12 schools that kind of cherry pick who they want. It does make it difficult for for Colorado. So I think Carl Durrell would love to bring in a majority of his players from the state of Colorado. I just don't think it's been practical just yet. Yeah. All right, let's go up, uh, bumping up now. we got the number five team. UCLA Bruins. <laughs> Uh, number 46 nationally, only uh, 12 commitments right now, 11 signed. Yeah, 11 signed. One didn't. DeAndre Gill, he was being recruited by Jason Kafusi and Johnny Nansen, who both went to Arizona. So he chose not to sign. Uh, they did lose Makai Fox, a four-star commitment. He will end up he's, – he's going to Colorado State. He visited Nevada. That whole staff went to Colorado State. Uh, he was going to have to wait until February to sign with UCLA, but decided to take the burden hand. Sign with Colorado State. Their big news was flipping Kamari Ramsey from Stanford. He'd been admitted into Stanford, committed to Stanford during the summer, and then decommitted from Stanford on Monday after visiting UCLA officially in October. He signed with UCLA. He's their highest-rated player in this class, uh, the number 10 player in the state of California, the number 12 safety nationally. They've done well at the tight end position after really scuffling at that position, recruiting-wise, the last three years. Landing Jack Peterson and Carson Ryan, a pair of four-stars. And then flipping Justin Martin from uh, California uh, to UCLA. He's at Inglewood High School. Two of his teammates, Tamari and Harden and Clint Stevens, were committed to UCLA. And then they got Justin Martin on board. He took a visit to Washington last weekend, largely as a backup plan, just in case Chip Kelly were to leave. Uh, but he ultimately signed with UCLA. So, you know, the Bruins will hit the portal hard like they've been the last couple of years. Did get the announcement on Thursday that Dylan Gabriel was leaving UCF. Uh, he's going to transfer to UCLA. And then Jake Bobo, who is no relation to the Mike Bobo that was the former Georgia head coach, but his father's name actually is Mike Bobo, and he did play college football. Jake Bobo <laughs> is transferring from Duke to UCLA. 
That's funny. Uh, now, David's not here. I, I think he's would be. We didn't really get to talk about. There was a pop, possibility that Chip Kelly went to Oregon. It looks like the Ducks were looking at Justin Wilcox more than Chip Kelly. I'm, no one's going to be happier than David Woods that Chip Kelly is going to be back. Obviously, you know, eight and four, going in the right direction, uh, putting up 62 points on your rival. Now, top five recruiting class. Looks like Chip Kelly's at recruiting again. Everything like Dave's probably going to be super happy, I would think, Brandon. Right, the way the UCLA's recruiting and the trajectory with Chip Kelly going forward. I I know he's super fired up <laughs> with the Chip Kelly extension that's about to be signed here, the long term extension. Very well, like 10 very years, excited think? for that. Ten years, yeah, ten years, maybe twelve. So I think Dave is you know planning his twenty thirty three watch party for when they replace Chip Kelly in Westwood. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I would say this is probably the most fascinating offseason of Chip Kelly at UCLA because there did seem to be a genuine interest on his part to go to Oregon. And that should be an indicator that perhaps he's not happy in Westwood. And with the large amount, UCLA has done a good job getting players out of the portal. They haven't lost as many. I think they've had 11 players go into the portal since the season ended. So maybe things are a little bit choppy down there in Los Angeles. It's, you know, the, just honestly, though, like it doesn't seem like he's all that interested in recruiting. But you have a staff and you let them go recruit. And maybe you only have to talk to the guy once when you're trying to close them. Like, is that that hard? Like, couldn't you just you're in Southern Most of the recruits or the signings are from Southern California. But you would think the Bruins could be in on some of those bigger names. Uh, and, you know, they are like C.J. Williams. They're in for for him. But is, is that something that you could just like hire great recruiters on your staff and then you'd be the closer? It, but it just doesn't seem he's all that interested. I mean, it really shouldn't be that difficult. I think some people make it much harder on themselves to recruit than it really is. Recruiting isn't that hard. When you have an admin and a staff of four or five assistant coaches or four or five, sorry, assistant re- recruiting assistants, let them imitate the coach and let them DM from the coach's account and just stay engaged. It was interesting, too, to see Chip Kelly on the road quite a bit for in-home visits that last two weeks leading up to signing day, not wearing UCLA gear, which was pointed out numerous times by UCLA fans on the Instagrams and the Twitters. Uh, but, you know, it did seem like he got out on the road a little bit more than he normally would. So it, it really doesn't seem to be recruiting. is is It's not that hard. It really isn't. Um but some people like to make it much harder than it really needs to be. <laughs> All right, let's go to our number four team. It's our Pac-12 champion. Utah Utes. 36th ranked class right now. They were 33 last year. It's one of those things. It's almost like a Happy Gilmore thing, Brandon, where you're like, oh, he's got there's all this talent. There. Like you just know the way they're going to build this program and stability. They have like this this raw talent, but. Or they they actually now are going to go out recruiting. It's like oh happy could putt now. Like hey Utah can go out and recruit now. If Utah gets like four and five star players, what could they do? Uh, I don't know if they're getting there yet, but it seems like now that you've broke through and won the Pac-12, it's an opportunity to take a step up in recruiting as well. Well, what I laugh about is we'll have our conference calls and we'll be like okay, which one of these low ranked Utah players is going to end up being the two time Pac-12 Player of the Year and Buckus <laughs> Award finalist? You know, it, it happens every year. There, there's one guy, there's one outlier. Devin Lloyd had one power five offer and ends up being the Pac-12 defensive player of the year at Utah. So you look at Utah's list and you start to see, hey, there aren't a lot of sleepers in this class. These are all guys that other Pac-12 schools really wanted. Uh-oh, for the rest of the Pac-12. 
that they were able to pull in the last few days leading up to signing day. Uh, Keith Olson, who had been committed to USC, a lot of people thought he was going to end up at Oregon State, where his father played football and baseball. Washington State with Clay McGuire, who had been recruiting him at USC, had been recruiting to the Cougs. And kind of in a shocker, uh, he picked Utah. Justice Lowe, who had six Pac-12 offers, including from Oregon and Oregon State, being the number four player in the state of Oregon, he picked Utah on the night before signing day as well. So Utah really building some momentum. And here's the thing. We, we always say that you see the bump in your recruiting after a successful season in the following recruiting class, maybe not that current class about to sign. So now when those Utah coaches hit the road in the spring, they're doing so as the Pac-12 champions. Who knows? They may be Rose Bowl champions hitting the road. And that's what the Pac-12 did not want to see. Lincoln Riley or no Lincoln Riley. I think the other Pac-12 schools have all felt like, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen if Utah actually starts bringing in elite recruits to then be developed by that coaching staff? The, uh, there was talk about Kyle Whittingham you know, retiring at some point. It doesn't seem like that's happening now, but we'll see. I mean, is that – what has it been like the stability of someone that's been there with 16, 17 years? Uh, how does that help on the recruiting trail? Well, for one thing, I always crack up when I see a head coaching job open up and people are saying, you know, Kyle Whittingham, I'm like, Dude, that guy, if he leaves, it's to go retire and be a grandpa. Yeah. He's not going to take another job. I mean, that guy, he's like Kirk Ferentz and Bob Stoops at Oklahoma where we're like, you almost can't even imagine him in another uniform. With Brian Kelly, you always thought there was a chance that he could leave. With Lincoln Riley, you always thought he might go to the NFL. But Kyle Whittingham, nobody's ever thought he was going to leave that program for another program. If he leaves, it's going to be to retirement. And there was a lot of talk early in the season coming off the death of Aaron Lowe um, after Ty Jordan, uh, his tragic death a year ago. Was he burnt out? Was he just so you know, just emotionally demoralized with having two deaths in his program and, and keep in mind it wasn't but seven eight years ago where he had two of his incoming recruits in a car accident one was killed in a car accident as well so Kyle Whittingham's dealt with some crap at yeah. Utah that you know you don't want you don't want to wish on anybody then for them to rally and to win the Pac-12 as emphatically as they did to go to the Rose Bowl Kyle Whittingham looked like he was about 20 years younger after the Pac-12 championship game than he did in September and we already know the guy's like in incredible shape. He's going to live to be 150 anyway and probably will still be lifting weights and running. But you almost feel like this guy, this kind of maybe rebirthed him. Now, watch. They go in the Rose while He turns around and turns it over to Morgan Scally or somebody else. But you almost feel like this season completely rejuvenated him because Utah, they've got some good young talent on that team. They, they could be the Pac-12 champs or in contention for the Pac-12 championship the next couple of years. I don't see him – when he brought the program into the Pac-12 from the Mountain West, when they had won a couple of Mountain West championships under him, he went 12-0 one year, won the Sugar Bowl, beat Alabama. You know, I think just getting the Pac-12 wasn't enough. He stayed the course to get him to a Rose Bowl. Now you can see him getting to the point where – Maybe Utah gets to the playoff, which they were knocking on the door of two years ago. And then he thinks maybe then the job might be done. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's see. Let's go to our number three team. Arizona Wildcats. From 1-11 to number three. Obviously, Jed Fish doing a great job there, getting a lot of excitement going. He's, his Twitter game might be the best in the Pac-12 as among coaches, Brandon, with the flips and all that stuff that they were doing. But what, what do you think about what Fish has been able to do? Uh, at Arizona. I mean, to come off a one-win season and still sign a top three class in the conference and, you know, to be able to be in contention that they may pull off the biggest stunner 
in the Pac-12, nothing will top Travis Hunter, but to, to our McMillan, you know, he didn't send a letter of intent in on Wednesday to Oregon. Arizona is making a valiant run to get him. They have his teammate Noah Fafita, Keon Burnett, uh, already signed in this class. I'll also have Jacob Manu from Servite. So three Servite teammates. And, and I love the 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 tweets that Jed Fish has said with Orange County, with Orange Juice, the OC Buckeyes, Juice <laughs> County Buckeyes. Like the very subliminal tweets that he's sending out, he gets it. And their recruiting effort this year to be able to get Ephesian Price Sox late, uh, Ephesians Price Sox late, uh, to hold on to Sterling Lane when, when Cincinnati was making a push, to get Kevin Green's commitment late, uh, to, to flip Keon Burnett when they did early on, which was a, a significant win at that point. He was committed to USC, but more importantly, he's an Arizona legacy whose father just didn't feel like the program was in good hands with his previous, uh, the previous coaches. And so Jed Fish gets his commitment. They held on to Jonah Coleman, despite some schools coming in late on him. Isaiah Ward from Colony High School in Ontario, him and his teammate, A.J. Jones. A.J. Jones was a one-time UCLA commit. Uh, Isaiah Ward, the, the nephew of Bobby Wagner, was kind of a late bloomer. Uh, I really like what Arizona did in this class. They flipped Tai Tai Uyangalele from modern day. Uh, they flipped him from Washington State late. And then uh, a player that we'll get to see at the Polynesian Bowl that I'm really interested in seeing is Jonah Savayanea out of St. Louis High School in Honolulu. When we think St. Louis, we think either linebackers or we think quarterbacks. Uh, with Jonah, he's a big six foot three, 330 pound, but not sloppy 330 pound, just a massive individual committed to, uh, to, to Arizona all the way back in June and, and held on uh, to his commitment. I think Arizona top to bottom, they have to be very thrilled with what they're bringing in this class. It's crazy, and, and it seems like you know they're recruiting California very hard. Uh, Eleven um, signees from the state of California, but this is sort of like what we wanted to see, or what Arizona State was kind of building, right? They were doing that for a little while, and uh, you know Arizona comes in, you got this energetic coaching staff, and they're just—I mean, they—I think they're doing it the right way. Like I—I I don't know if they're going to end up winning, but just what Fish is doing, it just seems to. This is kind of like the the boost of energy, the catalyst that the, they needed in Tucson. There, there's no question, and I think with. We, you know, when Kevin Sumlin was hired, I don't think anybody anticipated it was going to go as horribly as it did. But it was clear that towards the end of his Texas A&M regime that something wasn't going right. So they needed a complete reset, recalibration of that program. They go hire a first-time head coach, but a guy that you know with being a first-time head coach, he's hungry to prove that he should have been hired as a head coach a long time ago. And instantly, I mean, he hired a director of high school recruiting, a director of transfer recruiting. He basically built the recruiting staff before he finished his actual coaching staff because he understood from his time working for Jim Harbaugh at Michigan, from his time working at UCLA under Jim Mora, how important recruiting is, but also how much importance is at play when the head coach is involved with the day-to-day -day recruiting. And I think it's evident in this recruiting class. All right. Uh, let's see. We got two more left. Uh, our number two team. Oregon Ducks. Obviously, there was a coaching change there, but it built up so much uh, momentum on uh, the recruiting front and was able to, I think, doing a pretty good job of keeping the class together uh, for Dan Lanning. But what, what do you think uh, overall of uh, Oregon's class? Only uh, 31st in the nation, but uh, number two in the Pac-12. Yeah, for the majority of the year, it was number one in the Pac-12 and a top 10, top 12 class nationally. I think they lost eight players 
two decommitments on the departure, on the heels of Mario Cristobal's departure. Uh, they did have five players that have been committed to Oregon, not sign on Wednesday. Most of those guys are trying to see who will be replacing the, the head coaches that are likely to go to Miami or if any of those guys are staying on. Uh, but Dave Uli, a four-star lineman out of Washington, waiting to see who the offensive line coaches. Trajan Williams, a four-star um, safety from Portland. Waiting to see who the DB coach is. Grayson Halton, the four-star defensive lineman from San Diego. Waiting to see who the D-line coach is. Also, Miami's making a late push to try to flip him to Tori McMillan. They're trying to hold on to him, but Arizona's making that run. They did flip Anthony Jones from Texas, which was big. They held on to Ben Roberts off a late charge from Nebraska out of Utah, plus Harrison Taggart, a late charge from UCLA. They held on to him. But more importantly, with the two Jalils from San Diego Lincoln, Jalil Florence and Jalil Tucker, Florence decommitted. Tucker said he was going to wait until February to sign, but he ultimately sent his letter of intent in on Wednesday, and they got their highest-rated player to sign uh, on the defensive side of the ball. They got him to sign on Wednesday, so he is already in the boat. Now they just wait to see what T-Mac does. Um, as far as when you, you see a new coach coming in, it seems like Dan Lanning, another young guy, He's a. it's going to be a different shift, right? You're going from an offensive line kind of coach to a defensive coach your head coach um what have you kind of seen from him as far as like his what his what his recruiting chops could potentially be uh at a place like oregon well he's a top 10 recruiter in the in the top 24 7 recruiter rankings for the 2022 class i think he ranked number seventh at, at the time of his hiring at oregon so he's a guy who understands recruiting and you also come from the Kirby Smart coaching tree who comes from the Nick Saban coaching tree of the head coach is the closer. The head coach is the one who locks this ish up and gets these guys assigned. So they go from one aggressive recruiting head coach in Mara Cristobal to a guy who's got aggressive recruiting chops and coming from a school where there's been an aggressive recruiting angle provided by the head coach. So I think Dan Laney with the staff that is potentially rumored to be following him to Eugene understands the importance of recruiting, understands that Mario Cristobal has continued to build on the national brand that Oregon is. And if you look at their class before Cristobal left, it wasn't just West Coast kids. There was a lot of national recruits. And I think with Lanning being in Georgia for the last few years, he's going to, he as well is going to recruit nationally while also trying to get their share of guys in the Pac-12 footprint. But I think that there's going to continue to be a national pursuit for recruits for Dan Lanning. And I think that Given his time at Georgia and you see the the, the gradual uh, geographical net widening at Georgia under Kirby Smart, Brock Bowers was the 24-7 freshman of the year out of the Bay Area, uh, out of Napa, Northern California. Keely Ringo, an all-SEC corner out of Arizona. Uh, you had Kendall Milton, who they signed a year ago, uh, out of Fresno. JT Daniels transferred in there. So there's a, a good geographical widening of the net that's going on at Georgia. And Dan Lanning was a big reason that some of these players in the 22, 23, and 24 class were looking at Georgia. A number of players from the West Coast went out to Georgia this summer for camps, and they didn't just talk about Kirby. They talked about Dan Lanning specifically. So when his hire was announced, it wasn't unusual to see a lot of recruits quote tweeting the Dan Lanning hire with the eyeballs emoji because there's a lot of interest and familiarity with them. Yeah. All right, we got one team left. The number one team, a little shocking here. Stanford Cardinal. Number 15 class, class nationally, the only top 25 program right now uh, in the Pac-12. I mean, you watch them on the field, Brandon, and they were terrible. This seems like a team that's spiraling out of control. Guys transferring out of the program. 
Um, I don't know. Is it like a binge, binge and purge thing? Like they're, they, but they're bringing a lot of new uh, talent in there. Four, five star. I mean, four, seven, four star players uh, committed. Twenty two commits overall. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Stanford Cardinal? Well, I'll tell you that their class being just befuddles you in a way because it wasn't like they just suddenly had a dip. They had a really rough 2019 season where I think they went four and eight. They had the up and down topsy turvy 2020 season with COVID where they had false positives that knocked their quarterback Davis Mills out. Um, and I think they ended up finishing four and three, did beat Cal, did beat UCLA to end the year. So maybe things were looking right. Then they beat Oregon to start this season in Pac-12 play and then go three and nine. So what is there to make of Oregon or a Stanford on the field, but off the field, it shows you that that degree that education still resonates with recruits for them to have a top 15 class and to hold on to a number of these guys amidst a rough season. Guys are looking at Stanford as this isn't just, you know, for the September through November. This is for the four years on there and then the 40 year decision. We hear it all the time. So they didn't really lose anybody but Kamari Ramsey. Um, a lot of geographical diversity in this class. They have 14 states represented in their recruiting class in 2022, five of them from California and they're. The, the crown jewel of this class is David Bailey. The whole Pac-12 wanted David Bailey. USC made a late charge to flip him back to Stanford or to, to flip him to USC away from Stanford, but he ultimately signed with the Cardinal and he's their, their highest rated player uh, in this class, in the highest rated class in the Pac-12. A, a solid job across the board for the Cardinal. Now, can we get that and see if that'll translate in the fall? David Shaw has done it before. I mean, the guy has won three Pac-12 championships and a couple of Rose Bowls, and he's done it with his own recruits. You know, yes, there was early on a lot of the talk was, hey, he's doing this with Jim Harbaugh's recruits. But by the time he won his second Rose Bowl and his third Pac-12 championship, those were all his own recruits. So I think we've seen him do it before. Can he rebound and do it again? Yeah, it's it's baffling, and no one's recruited a more as far as diverse, you know, from geographically, uh, you know, from Hawaii to Massachusetts. I mean, you got players from from everywhere, most you know, five from California, but this is really spread out. I'm impressed with what he was able to do because there's a lot of talk when we're talking on the podcast of champions about don't they have to fire David Shaw? Don't they have to fire David Shaw? If you had that kind of, and I don't think Stanford's going to, I don't think they ever would. Um, but it doesn't seem to impact the recruiting trail because they've been a, you know, doing a good job there. But any other program, if you had that kind of instability, I don't think you recruit at this level. Yeah, and it's funny because I think this was the first year we started to see a number value next to what David Shaw was actually making a year at Stanford. Maybe maybe it had been public in the past, but because they're a private school, it never was really known how much he was making. But for $9 million, which is what the reported figure has been, you would have thought going nine, you know, four, four and eight, three and nine might curb that. But he built up enough, I think, enough goodwill in his time winning Rose Bowls, multiple Rose Bowls, multiple Pac-12 championship. But at some point, you got to think that the seat's going to get hot. And this is, the, this is the kind of recruiting class that allows you to say, hey, I'm recalibrating. I'm getting things back to where I wanted to be. You know, just we're, we're hitting a dip, which a lot of programs hit. But stay the course. I, I think that's got to be the one thing that's that's keeping him there is the fact that recruiting hasn't tailed off or suffered. Yeah. All right. Well, that was a great recap. That was our, hold on, we'll do our Pac-12 Roundup of the early signing period uh, with Brandon Huffman. Brandon, appreciate that. Um, let's take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do a quick preview of the Jimmy Kimmel Bowl and, uh, and we'll answer some questions. So back in a minute. 
now streaming on Paramount Plus. Gather your besties. We are very exclusive. And get ready. Mom, go make snacks. For sure, Regina. Yeah. For the movie that hits like a bus in a good way. No one dies. Mean Girls. Made at PG 13. Now streaming on Paramount Plus. This is Tony Kornheiser's show. I'm Tony. We expected someone else. So what exactly is the show about? Hmm, I don't know. It's a sports show nominally. Football's over, but we're finally at a point where things matter in college basketball and baseball season is on deck. Greatest three words in the English language, pitchers and catchers. We have some of the best voices come on and explain what matters or what makes an upset, like Ryan does, <laughs> nine over eight. No, that's not an upset. No, yeah, it is, Bob. And if you're lucky, I might just tell you about my search for discounted sleep pants or my worries about what my dog just ate. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back on the POC with uh, Brandon Huffman. Uh, we're going to I'll have David back on um, next week, so during sometime before Christmas, and we will preview the remaining bowl games. But we do have one early bowl game, the Jimmy Kimmel Bowl, and that's going to be uh, Mountain West champion Utah State. We saw take down uh, San Diego State and uh, Carson. Uh, San Diego State had a bunch of COVID issues, but they're going to be taking on Oregon State Beavers. <laughs> Yeah, this is going to be in SoFi, uh, December 18th, so just coming up. It's tomorrow, right? What was today? Friday? Saturday, or it's tomorrow night, right? Yeah, tomorrow night. Uh, Nationally Beavs, televised on ABC. Very nice. Um, the Beavs are favored by seven and a half points. Um, what do you think about this uh, matchup? Utah State was awful last year. They brought in like 40 transfers, I think, and uh, – they beat was it they beat Cal early on or would they beat Washington State? They Washington, Washington State early. State. Yep. Yeah, early on, and uh, that looked like a really bad loss. But Utah State ended up being pretty good. Yeah, Utah State has kind of a weird season in that you know they beat Washington State on the road, then they turn around and at home get jackhammered by Boise State, go to BYU or, or play BYU, lose to BYU at home, and then play Wyoming and get jackhammered by Wyoming at home. But yet. They go on the road and they, which is essentially a home game. Although if there's only 19 people there to watch the Mountain West Championship game, <laughs> is it really a home game? Uh, and wall of San Diego State, uh, it, it was just it was such a weird season for them that they beat the teams that they maybe weren't expected to beat, and then lost badly to a couple teams at home that maybe you would have thought they would contend with a little bit more, which makes their bowl game against Oregon State all the more crazy. Now, if you look at Oregon State's schedule, you know, Oregon State really only has one bad loss on the slate, or maybe two, uh, losing at Colorado and at Cal. Uh, but they did, you know, their, their Purdue loss doesn't look as bad now. Um, the Washington State game was I'm sure they weren't excited about losing, but it wasn't a bad loss. And then Oregon wasn't a bad loss. But Oregon State had some good wins this year, beating Washington at home, even though it was a down Washington team, beating USC on the road for the first time in, what, like 170 years, um, <laughs> even though it was a down USC team. I mean, th this is a game between two programs that – I mean, they did be, that's right. They did beat Utah, and I don't yeah. think Utah has lost since then. So no. the uh, the Gary Anderson Tribute Bowl will be very fascinating <laughs> to see, you know, which school has less buyout money that they are responsible for with Gary so chivalrously walking away from his buyouts. That is great. The, the Gary Anderson connection between these two programs uh, is strong. Now, David sent me his pick. He All he said was, uh, Oregon State, baby. So he's taking Oregon State lay of the seven and a half. Uh, I'm going to take Utah State. Uh, the U I mean, Utah State, the Aggies are just played in L.A., and they won. So 
So they're gonna come back to LA and win again. They're they're nine and four against the spread this year. So getting seven and a half, I like that. Uh, Oregon State's one and five away from Corvallis. Um, so they've not that that defense doesn't really travel. So coming down to Southern California, uh, I think they're gonna give up some points, but. Uh, I'm going to take Utah State in this one. I'm behind David anyway, so I need to try to pick different from him. But I don't know. What do you think about this one? So I picked Oregon State to win, but in my confidence pool that I'm in, I picked them with my seventh lowest confidence okay. uh, in that game. I I know that, obviously, the, the spread uh, was trending towards the Bees, but I even though – when we see Mountain West Pac-12 bowl games like this, this used to be the old Las Vegas Bowl. If you look at it from the Mountain West champion used to go to the Las Vegas Bowl, uh, and now they're playing Oregon State in the Los Angeles Bowl, uh, the very legendary Los Angeles Bowl um, in SoFi with Jimmy Kimmel. Um, nothing says 2021 college bowl games like the Jimmy Kimmel LA Bowl. Yeah. But it's it's one of those games where the Mountain West team seemingly has more to play for because they're playing a Pac-12 school. We see this a lot with the early bowl games where you might have a G5 conference champion playing a fifth or sixth place team from a Power 5 conference, and it usually bodes well, even though the, the, the talent is usually so overwhelming in their favor. So I still think Oregon State will win. I think Jonathan Smith, he's also returning to Los Angeles. Oregon State, their one road game win was in Los Angeles. True, so good I'm going I'm to ride with that. I like that. That's a good point. Uh, and it's funny. I've seen a couple of interviews with Jimmy Kimmel and he doesn't know anything about either of these teams. It just seems like he did this on a dare or something. I don't know. Something that they were like, oh, you should do a bowl game. Like, okay. You know, they made put his name on a bowl game. So At least if you're going to bastardize a bowl game. And no, I'm not saying Jimmy Kimmel's going to bastardize. By the way, my daughter actually appeared on Jimmy Kimmel this summer. Um, one of the kids say the crazy things. So big Jimmy Kimmel fan here. But if you're going to do it, nothing screams Los Angeles more than Jimmy Kimmel having his name on the Los Angeles Bowl. That's so good. That's awesome. Your daughter was on there. I've been to taping a couple of times. It's funny. He's funny. He used to be on K Rock here, and he was the sports guy on K Rock, like a local radio station here in Los Angeles. So, uh, good stuff. All right, we let's do a few questions. We'll try to get through this quick. From Rusty, um, since you are ostensible quote journalists, I would appreciate your answer to the following questions. Fascinated by people who use the phrase quote fake news to reject facts. That they do not like. In this con- uh, connection, over the past two weeks, Twitter has been awash with number of Oregon fans who have used the fa- phrase "quote fake news" whenever reports emerged that contradicted their apparent belief that the Oregon head coaching job is among the most elite and sought-after coaching gigs in America. For example, the phrase would wi- was widely used each time reports emerged that big-name coaches such as Matt Campbell or Dave Aranda had rejected Oregon's advances. Likewise, cries of "quote fake news" erupted. When reports began emerging that a relatively unknown assistant coach, Dan Lanning, had been hired. And last night, well, the fake news crowd lost their minds. We had a couple, uh, we had a complete meltdown of denial when John Canzano reported that Justin Wilcox had been offered the job but turned it down. He says, Say it ain't so, Joe. Please say it ain't so. So, question is based on your knowledge and experience, what criteria do you journalists use in deciding whether to publish a source report? When respected journalists such as Kazana, Wilner, or Feldman provide source reporting, do you personally assume that those reports are likely to be correct? Your pal on the range, Rusty. Do you have Rosetta Stone for really philosophical questions? <laughs> <laughs> I should. That'd be good. Some of these, we get long ones. We get uh, That was a big one out of the gate. Sorry. I should have went a yeah. short one first. <laughs> um, 
I would say that I feel pretty good about reporting commitments. Most of the stuff that I report is going to be on the recruiting side of things, and usually it's coming from the player. Uh, sometimes coaches will tell us the kid's committing, but I'll wait till I get confirmation from the player. But there are some things that you feel very confident in running that you don't necessarily want to wait for everybody else to report so you get stuck being the 12th person to report it. I think it's you know kind of a case-by-case basis, but – I think if you trust your source, if that source hasn't burned you in the past and things line up, you know, if you feel good about what you're reporting, report it. But I do think we've seen a rise, not just in college football, but in sports media, the rush to be first rather than to be right. Yeah, that's a big part of this. And I think, you know, if you, if it's something like a season ending injury or something that like, you know, they're, they're big things like people report, you know, there've been reports out there in just the world that somebody had passed away and they're still alive, you know? So like there's, there's things where you're like, well, he's not doing well. He's on his deathbed and you can't take it the next step and say, well, he's dead. Like, well, no, he's not. Cause he's, he's not <laughs> dead yet. No, he made a recovery. Uh, you know, re- reports of my death or, you know, premature, whatever it was, you know, those things. Um, so you gotta, I think you have to double check with stuff going on. It depends on what the news is. If it's a high school kid, you know, commitment and the kid tells you he's committing, like you don't need to like double check with anybody else. Like he's telling you that like, that's, right. that's fine. But he might change his mind as soon as he gets off the phone with you and like, uh, you know what? I'm not I'm not going to. And and Brandon reports something and it doesn't, you know, so you just try to be good about it. But, yeah, those guys you trust. It was funny that the Dan Lanning stuff came out early and then was disputed and then came back. And that might have been like the Justin Wilcox aspect of it, too. So there's a, there's weird stuff that goes on behind the scenes there. All the time. And I think that that's the other thing. You you know when you know there's a coaching search, there's going to be all kinds of misinformation. A lot of times I feel like schools will leak names just to see what the response is to that name. And if it's overwhelmingly negative, then they'll say, yeah, we never really offered him the job. And if it's overwhelmingly positive within a day, yep, we're hiring him. So I think a lot of times there's a and, – and really, I mean, Ryan, you've been covering college sports for 25-plus years. We've all been – you know, we've all had other kind of journalistic chops in other eras. But is there anything that is more wild in the entire sports industry than college football head coaching searches? Oh, it's crazy. I mean, it's – and it's, it's a funny thing is as far as our business goes, like it, there's nothing better. Like there's nothing better than a coaching search for business there's nothing gets more interest you can sign five-star players you can win games and but when you have a head coaching search like that's the thing that moves the needle the most which is that which is crazy but it just does it's the the hot boards alone the page views that come to a hot board you know even in an era where it seems like every few years there's a, a new batch of names. A few years ago it was it was this batch of names. In basketball, how many years do we see Mark Few's name on the list? Now it seems like yeah. okay, every you know for a while it was Chris Peterson's name was going to end up on every list when he's at Boise State. Now it's like okay, if we're doing a coaching hot board, you know these are the names that are going to be on it by by the rule because these are the names of the hottest young coaches. And it seems like you know you can always tell how hot that coach is by if he no longer appears on coaching boards anymore. Um, but I mean, people just want to know. And then there's always that one random message board poster who finds the most random connection between like, well, you know, his great aunt's sister actually attended the school and he went to this school for games when he was a child. And here's a picture of him wearing that school's uniform to his fourth grade talent show. And then that becomes, well, this is his dream job. He's a lock for it. I mean, groomers. How many years have we had to put up with John Gruden rumors? Oh, to, my God. Yeah. To Knoxville. 
And the Urban Meyer, hopefully that's kind of put to bed, but it probably won't be. But you get guys like Dino Babers, like, oh, they almost, you know, whatever, you know, plays Clemson tough. And uh, then he kind of falls off the face of the earth. But, you know, now it's the the Luke Fickles and Matt Campbells and Dave Arandas of the world. It's all it's all kind of crazy. Um, speaking of Wilcox, we talked about him. I got a voicemail for you. Here you go, Brandon. What's good, guys? This is Evan from Tempe. And uh, I want to call about this Justin Wilcox thing. Uh, I've been saying that Oregon is an extremely overrated football program for basically forever. Uh, and, you know, because they've literally never won anything ever. And uh, it's just funny because don't their assistant coaches say, what's the thing that, that we run the West and all that. And uh, I just find that funny because they've literally never won anything in their entire existence. And it has even gotten to the point where even when they're supposed to be at their best and they run the conference or whatever they say, they can't even bring in Justin Wilcox, who sucks. Okay, we're talking about a guy who's 26 and 28. That's horrible. And he'd rather stay at a program that David said hasn't been good since 1937 and go to trash than go to Oregon. So I just want to know, you know, is Oregon the most overrated football program in the country? They have zero national championships, literally not one. They have the 43rd all-time record, 48th in conference championships, 29th in bowl games, I mean their wins of Pedia, 36 in wins, 62nd in bowl record. This is all horrible. And they act like there's blue blood. How could Cristobal leave our program and all that? So I just think this stuff's funny. So thank you, guys. Wow. Evan Brady. So <laughs> which area code did that come from? The 425, the 253, 206, or 360 area code in Washington? Uh, let me find. It was not in Washington. No, he's in he's in Tempe. He's in Tempe, Arizona. Wow, did yeah. not see that coming. Evan in Tempe. Uh, he's like a USC Arizona State guy. Gotcha. U- unique blender. The, the disdain for Mario Cristobal in Oregon sounded like it could only be coming from the Evergreen State. So there's our first <laughs> we get, big we get a lot of those. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I I don't even know how to respond to that question. I I would um, think so as far as like. Just because one coach doesn't want to go to a program doesn't mean that the program sucks. Like, like you, it has to be a right fit, you know. It's just right. Justin Wilcox doesn't have a great record, but it wasn't going to be working for him. I think they probably got somebody better, you know, in Dan Lanning. I mean that, you know. But just it, right now, it's weird because the best coaches that that Brandon was mentioning, those guys that are on all the lists, they all stayed put. Um, mm-hmm. And we're seeing the Mel Tucker's of the world get paid. 10 years, $10 million salaries just to stay where they are. It's a lot easier to keep your customer than to go get a new one. And and programs are realizing that we're going to pay for our guy now, even if you're, um, you know, James Franklin and Penn state's not all that enamored with them. They still gave him a 10 year extension because it's like, we'd rather just keep him than try to go find somebody else. So I wouldn't just say, well, cause Justin Wilcox didn't want to go to Oregon means Oregon's a trash program. You know, and the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. So for yeah. a lot of these coaches, leaving doesn't always mean that it's going to be more successful. You might be walking into a tougher situation, a no-win situation in a lot of these cases. And it might not to say that Oregon's a no-win situation and Cal is a winning situation. But, you know, just because Justin Wilcox played at Oregon doesn't mean that he wants to coach at Oregon. If that was the case, Urban Meyer would have been the head coach at Notre Dame in 2005 and not Charlie Weiss. Sometimes they find that they're a be- they personally are a better fit for another program, for another part of the country. I mean, Luke Fickle should have had his, his pick of the litter, but he wants to stay in a certain geographical region. So it doesn't mean those other programs suck because they can't get Luke Fickle. It means Luke Fickle wants to stay where he's at. 
you know, it, it doesn't mean that. I, I mean, I, I don't know. They're they're just. I think there's way more nuance and layers to it than just Oregon being overrated and sucking as a program because Justin Wilcox didn't want to go there. Yeah. All right. Uh, we got a text message. Uh, didn't say who this was from. It says the Utah Athletic Department estimates that Utah will have 60,000 fans at the Rose Bowl. When was the last time UCLA had 60,000 in that stadium? It, uh, is it amazing the success that Chip is having at a basketball school? Any thoughts on that? Um, I don't know if they're going to get 60,000 at the Rose Bowl. Brand. I was in Vegas for the Pac-12 championship game, and they, they had a lot of fans in there. I don't know if it was like 30,000, 40,000 Utah fans, something like that. There was a lot, and uh, it was a really good environment. I think they're going to come out in droves for the Rose Bowl, but I don't know about 60K. Yeah, I mean, it all depends on Ohio State, who was just in that bowl game three years ago, what kind of crowd that they bring. Maybe they sell their tickets, but it always seems like whenever a red team comes to the Rose Bowl, there's like a billion extra people. I remember when I was still living in Los Angeles in Southern California, going to the 2002 Rose Bowl, which was the 2001 season national championship game between Nebraska and Miami. I'm pretty sure there was 170,000 Nebraska fans in the parking lot that didn't even go into the game, including the 90,000 in the stadium. There was like 5,000 adorable little Miami fans who had, you know, basically talked trash the entire game and for good reason. Then there was the rest of the people that just came to actually watch a murder, uh, which we got to see with what Miami did to Nebraska in that game. But I would bet Utah brings a good, you know, it's not like Ohio State hasn't been to the Rose, but this I think will be their third time in the last dozen years. They've been to that game. They played in the national championship game a year ago. You know, that's the other thing to keep in mind. Costs aren't always easy. When you're playing in New Orleans and then in Miami back-to-back games like Ohio State did last year, they played in the playoffs the year before that where they went out to, I want to say, the Fiesta Bowl. So, you know, three of the last four years, Ohio State has been in a Western Bowl game where Utah's never been in the Rose Bowl. So I would imagine Utah's going to outdraw Ohio State. This is a little bit of a letdown season for Ohio State. This is a big season for Utah. So I would anticipate that they would bring 60,000 fans, but it will be a lot more than what Chip Kelly has been bringing to the Rose Bowl on fall Saturdays. (laughs) Fair point. Uh, I got another voicemail for you, Brandon. Hey, what's up, guys? It's Perk. Um, Seems like with the way a lot of the programs have gone, um, you know, so far with coaching changes and stuff like that, it seems like for the first time in a long time, I'd say the, the overwhelming majority, close to all the teams in the conference are going into next season on a positive trajectory. Um, an exception for maybe uh, Colorado or um, or Arizona State, uh, but I was wondering, um, in your guys' case, one, would you agree with that um, perception? And two, um, is there a team that everyone's optimistic about going into next year that you guys um, think people shouldn't be as optimistic about? And then there's there a team that no one is optimistic about that you guys think people should be more optimistic about for next year? Thanks, guys. Interesting, Perk. Uh, what do you think, Brandon? I'll, I'll take the optimism question first. Uh, uh, Ryan, for $200. Um, <laughs> I would say that the one thing that I would say people might not be optimistic about that could end up being better is going to probably be Cal. I think because we have finally seen the end of the Chase Garbers era. And I mean, considering the guy was recruited by Steve Mariucci, played for Sonny Dykes and Jeff Tedford, and finished his career with Justin Wilcox. And there is such little quarterback depth. I think the natural thought is that Cal's going to be down. But, you know, when Cal wasn't being ravaged by COVID this year uh, and having to go lose to Arizona, they had a chance to go to a bowl game this year. You know, they played, what, three games two years ago as well, or or I guess in 2020 during the COVID season. I still think Justin Wilcox is a good coach. And their defense does 
have the ability to hang with most teams. Uh, but I think, you know, Cal's demise might be a little bit, that's a team being, you know, pessimistic at your own risk, because I think that, I mean, I'm not saying they're going to win the Pac-12, but I wouldn't be surprised if they end up going seven and five next year. Um, and then a team that I think uh, people will be optimistic about, largely because the return of Jaden Daniels is Arizona State. You know, I think so much is going to be dependent on who comes, who goes, what the transfer portal looks like with them. I know they're going to be losing some guys at the NFL early. The coaching situation is still fluid with the assistant coaches. So ASU, there was big things expected from them this year. Never quite lived up to them. I think a lot of the offseason stuff kind of, you know, messed with them a little bit. But if you look at their schedule, you know, for for this year, you can see that they really didn't have many terrible losses like all four of their losses were to bowl. I mean they were bad losses when they lost those games but all four of their losses were to bowl teams and I, I think that you know ASU is a team that should be better next year with the return of Jaden Daniels but who knows how they'll be and how they'll react to another offseason of what could be a little bit of turmoil yeah it's funny I might have Cal on the opposite side because Chase Garber's the MVP. Unless unless he's playing well, they don't win. So I don't know. I don't know if they're going to be able to win any games without Chase Garber's, Brandon. Uh, that might be a weird one. Arizona State, I'm not sure if there's going to be people that are optimistic uh, for the Sun Devils. I think I would be more pessimistic side. If they turn things around, though, I mean, um, I don't know, that would be interesting. I'm curious to see what Washington does just because they had such a bad year. Uh, but I think I'm going to continue to be pessimistic on Stanford, even with this recruiting class. It just seems like they're not going to change any coaches. They're not going to change anything. And it's still going to be the same. I think you're going to see the same product. On the field. I don't know. We'll see. Um, all right. We got two more and we'll let you go. Sorry. That's uh, Brian from uh, Livermore. He said, I'm an Oregon alum, listener from the beginning. How much influence does the NFL on the West Coast having early success with young coaches with limited head coaching experience influence the Oregon and USC lesser so hires? Rams, Chargers, Cardinals have shown high level of success on the field with coaches that have had a short or non-existent head coaching experience at this level. Do you think the athletic directors and boosters are trying to catch lightning in a bottle based on regional influence or are there other factors in play in your opinion? I don't know. Does your does that coach have a connection to Sean McVay? Because that seems to be the magic touch to getting oh, an yeah. NFL head coaching job. Him and Sean McVay once drank from the same keg. Oh, yep, he's the new head coach for the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> um, although Sean McVay doesn't strike me as a keg drinking type of guy, he he strikes me as more of a whiskey and coke guy. Um, I I think we're going to see on the heel now. Now, granted, it was a. a Terrible program, or terrible, I guess they're not a program in the NFL, terrible franchise in recent years. But I would say if one of the most successful college coaches in the last 20 years fails as miserably as he does in the NFL in Urban Meyer, that's going to be enough to counter that Cliff Kingsbury is having more success in the NFL than he did in college argument for me. I don't see the NFL drawing from the collegiate ranks, but maybe once a year. You know, you're going to have your Matt Rules, you'll have your Cliff Kingsbury's, you know, you'll, you'll have the, the Pete Carroll type of outliers who were really an NFL guy before he went to college. But I, you know, it's just like you don't see that many NBA, or college coaches go to the NBA. It's just a different type of grind, different type of lifestyle. When you don't get to manage the talent on your roster like you do in the college, the collegiate ranks, that makes a much bigger difference in your ability to be a, an NFL head coach. So, I think the NFL influence is there, but shoot, Bill Belichick's making what? $11 million a year? There's like college coaches that have been to one New Year's Six Bowl that are making that much. The money is in the <laughs> collegiate game. 
Yeah, that's crazy. I I don't think the NFL influences that much on college, uh, Ryan, but I don't know. We'll see. And then, you know, Lincoln Riley's been, he's only been a head coach for five years, but tons of success. So I wouldn't, I would say that's a different story too. Uh, he had a, he had a P I said, happy holidays. He had a PS. Uh, how bad does Stanford have to be to fire their head coach? Like actually, like, I mean, I, I don't think that's going to happen, right? Like yeah. they're not going to fire him. Is that a rhetorical question or is that like an actual, <laughs> you want an answer? Because I'm pretty sure that, you know, Buddy Tevens and, and Walt Harris hit rock bottom and might've even been further South of rock bottom when they got fired. But again, David Shaw, would, you would seemingly think with the success he had there, especially early on in his career, he might get to write his own ticket of when he's done. Yeah, I would think so. I talked to RJ Abadia about it, and he's just like, they'll like, never fire him. Like, he'd have to walk away. He'd want to, like, oh, I'm going to go do the NFL Network or whatever, which he's really good on. But um, one last one, Alex in Arcadia, a fun one about holiday parties. He says, which Pac-12 coach would throw the best holiday party and why? I mean, I got to think Herm Edwards is going to throw the biggest rager of all. Ooh. You know, he, he would be my pick. This, this is a guy that he's like that parent in college or in high school. Not that I ever did this to my parents, but he's that parent in high school. Is like, oh, beer? Sure, you can have beer. I didn't know that there was beer in the, in the fridge. You know, <laughs> liquor in the, in the closet? Oh, shoot. I had no idea that there was liquor in the closet. What nice. you guys got? Other stuff out in the garage? Hey, sounds great. I didn't know that that was there. I was gone. So I got to think his house would host. Maybe he himself won't throw the best ragers, but his house would certainly host some hellacious ragers. That's a very, that's a really good point. I think I would go with, especially you want underage people like Brandon apparently wants at his party, so he's going to have uh, Herm Edwards there. I, no, <laughs> I, I'm a father of teenagers, so I just know what to look for in parents. <laughs> He'd be the, it's like if your your kid comes home and, and Herm Edwards is uh, his his dad, you're like, oh yeah, they're, I'm not. you can't go over his house when uh, Herm's not around because they're just having exactly. a party. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go Jed Fish. Like, I think that there would be significant party planning involved like there would be like he would have like a you know their own bartender it'd be catered uh but it would also have like the aspects of the rager thing i think he would throw like a wild party so I, I, he just seems so fun i'll go with fish there would be keg stands and there would be video on the, on the snapchats i'm sure of the rager oh, that he throws yeah there'd be a lot of tiktok videos and stuff it'd be uh it'd be good uh should we answer who would throw the most boring party in the pac-12 uh, uh yeah sure uh would you go chip like wh what do you think I'm going Carl Durrell. Carl Durrell? Okay. Yeah, they'd be like, um, you know, did you RSVP? We sent you a letter in the mail and uh, yeah, something like that. Uh, our, party will, our party will have appetizers or in fact, the invitation would call them hors d'oeuvres instead of appetizers. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. A little fancier. Um, sweet. Okay. Well, Brandon, I can't thank you enough. Uh, make sure you follow him on Twitter at Brandon Huffman. Uh, but thanks so much for coming on and co-hosting with me, who's a little under the weather. I don't know if you can hear my voice. Uh, taking in for, you know, so much, so much better than David Woods. I mean, obviously, and better at everything, <laughs> you know. Um, better haircut, better on it. You got it all uh, over, David. So we appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me on, Dave. I did my best to fill your shoes. I'll never be able to fill them, nor will I be able to fill your, fill your beard. <laughs> I'll just stop right there. The beard is good. All right. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for Brandon Huffman. I'm Ryan Abraham. Thank you so much for tuning in to the podcast of Champions. Hope you enjoyed the show. And we will talk to you next time. <sighs>
Spring training is in full swing and fantasy baseball draft season is upon us. That means you need to join us on Fantasy Baseball Today in 5, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Stample, every Monday through Saturday for six pods per week throughout the month of March. We'll break down the latest news, spring training updates, players to target, and much more in just five minutes. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found.